If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke 4. We're going to be there, and we're going to be scattered throughout the text, um, the scriptures this morning. But I'll begin here. Um, in college, there are kind of two types of classes you can take. There's core curriculum classes. There's electives. Um, so in college for me, a couple of my electives included astronomy. Man, I loved that class. Just stared at the stars. Um, and then swimming was another elective that I, I, I uh, jumped into uh, quite literally. And man, what I didn't need to graduate was the swimming class or the astronomy class. I needed my core curriculum classes that were necessary for me to graduate with the degree that I had. Um, and what, um, what we find within... Uh, the scriptures and where we're going to go this morning is that there are some truths in the scriptures around Jesus' care for the vulnerable that aren't electives for us to take as followers of Jesus, but they're core curriculum that are necessary for us to follow Jesus. So as apprentices, we need to learn from him if we want to build our lives upon him. And so historically on Martin Luther King weekend, we, we take some time to talk about justice. And so simultaneously this Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so we're going to lean in to consider Jesus's care for the vulnerable. And so that's where we're going this morning. Um, you know, as the church, we are not defined by the political party. You know, we've talked about this over the last several years. Like it's, it's gotten hot and heavy within the landscape of our day and the culture that we live in. This pressure uh, around kind of political parties, around kind of everyone being demonized from other people and places. But as Christians, we are distinct, and we want to lean into that as, as a community, that we are not defined by a political party. We are distinct. The moment that the church is seen in context to a political party, and hear me say this, the moment the church is seen in context to a political party is the moment that we emasculate ourselves from the hope and the light that the world so desperately needs. So the moment that the church is defined by specific parties, the moment we lose our power that we have as the church to be distinct. And so we walked through a series last spring on gospel human flourishing. If you weren't here during that time, I would invite you to, to dive into that. It was like an eight-part series around what it looks like for the gospel to define human flourishing and justice and things like that. Um, and so as we begin this morning, I want to kind of sync up around two things that we talked about in that series. The first is that when the Bible talks about vulnerable people, it talks about four very specific vulnerable people. It talks about the poor, the orphans, the widows, and the immigrants. Those are what the Bible defines regularly throughout the Old and New Testament as people that we are called to care for specifically, vulnerable people. Uh, those vulnerable people can be translated into areas that we uh, need to, to care for. You know, you think about um, each of those widows, orphans, immigrants, and poor. So we're called to care for those people. And the second thing, as we talked about in that series, is that to do justice is to represent God's heart by making wrongs right, holding the unjust accountable, and seeing to it that the wronged are made whole, communicating that there is a better day to come. And so when we think about justice, our vision as gospel people is to consider this vision of shalom, this dream of God to bring forth full redemption, that the day is coming in the future, and we can see glimpses of that here and now, and that motivates us to engage these things. And so today, we're going to consider Jesus' heart for the vulnerable. And i got three points for us. The first, Jesus began his ministry with a deep care for justice. 
He began his ministry with a deep care for justice. In Luke 4, we see this. We see that he spent most of his life in obscurity. The majority of his life was spent in obscurity, where we don't know much about his life. We get glimpses when he's 12. We have glimpses when he's a baby, a 2-year-old, 12-year-old. Don't have much until he's 30. And so he gets on the scene when he's 30, and we see that he's baptized. We see that he's tempted in the desert for 40 days by the devil, And then he begins his ministry by going into the synagogue and reading a specific text in Luke chapter 4 that's uh, pointing to reference from Isaiah. If you think about it, you know, presidents during the campaign trail, they typically talk about what I'm going to do my first day in the office. What I'm going to do the first 90 days that I'm in office. And typically that's a statement that's communicating the highest value that they have for something in particular. Sometimes they fulfill those things, sometimes they don't, but that's typically a statement that's communicating something of high value for a president. It's a statement that's made. So this first reading that Jesus gives is a declaration of his ministry and the kingdom he's bringing. Let's read it. Luke 4, verse 18. The first thing that he reads in his ministry is this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is from Isaiah 61. He's referencing directly. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sits down. So he's quoting from Isaiah 61. He says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before is now being fulfilled through me, he's saying. And he's come to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captive, recovery the sight of those who are blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he walks away, and people are stunned. See, Jesus came and brought his kingdom to restore this broken world. That's the first statement that he gave in his ministry. So yeah, he came for personal salvation, For all who would trust in him, he came for redemption, but he also came to restore the cosmos, the universe to its its intended design. The world has been deeply fractured, personally and uh, in a global standpoint, that it has been fractured. He's come to fix and restore and renew this world. That's what we're going to find out starting next week when we get into the book of Revelation. We're going to see more about that coming up in 168 hours, my friends. And so we live in a deeply broken world that has been deeply fractured by sin and death. And Jesus came to bring hope and full restoration. He's not just going to burn this place up and start afresh. He's going to renew this place. See, injustice is not the design. Sorrow is not the design, betrayal is not the design, and he came to renew this world. See, Jesus did not move on from the Old Testament's concern for justice. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll find a, a theme throughout the, uh, the prophets in particular about injustice and a, and a call of God to a higher standard of justice. In fact, Jesus has an intense interest in and love for the same kind of vulnerable people that we find that the Old Testament cared for. See, in the Old Testament, there was a complementary emphasis. One, we are called to care for the vulnerable, the quartet of the vulnerable. And justice is used as a heart analysis. To the degree that we care for justice is 
the degree that we understand where our faith lies before God. See, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, uh, Micah, Malachi, all leveled this charge that you can attend worship, you can observe religious regulations, you can know the Bible, and take advantage of or ignore the weak and the vulnerable. And he says, if that happens, throughout the prophets, if that happens, your heart is off. If you're uh, vertically giving your heart to God, but horizontally, that's not interacting uh, and uh, kind of fleshing out in how we care for others, then our hearts are not truly understanding and allowing the gospel to shape us on a practical level. See, an encounter with a gracious God inevitably leads to a life of justice. A lack of justice is a sign that our hearts are not right with God. And so let's look at a couple passages in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, I'm going to look at two in Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, verse 13. And again, we're trying to dive into what is Jesus's heart for the vulnerable. And so in Isaiah 1, 13 and 14, it says this. Isaiah says, God speaking on behalf of Isaiah, says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates, God says. And they've become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. And then you fast forward to verse 16, and it says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He says, I'm fed up with just having a vertical interaction with me that's not leading to caring for others. And that we find that trend throughout the prophets. We see in Isaiah 58, and we go on and on, Micah 6, on and on and on and on. But Jesus supported this. So followers of Jesus are not only concerned about seeing souls saved, though we are. We are also compelled to care for the people Jesus teaches us to care for. Quartet of the vulnerable. See, we have a temptation to compartmentalize Kind of have this side of our faith. Faith happens on Sunday, maybe in community group. And then everything else is kind of for myself. But Jesus is wanting to integrate all of our faith with all of our lives. The gospel compels us to care for the soul of a human and the needs of that same human made in the image of God. It's not enough just to preach something. Jesus also calls us to do something. So just as Jesus brought the kingdom of God into the world, so as followers of him, we're called to do the same. It's in this first scripture reading, Jesus reminds us that biblical justice is not an elective, it's a core curriculum. So we get to the second point, which is this. Jesus overturned the systems of his day to invite his people to be distinct in our world. Man, I hope as years go by and you guys plug in more deeply with our community that you will hear us beat this drum that we are called to be distinct. We're called to be distinct. We're not called to be of this world. We're called to be distinct. And it's in that that we become beautiful to the world as we seek to follow Jesus. And so Jesus overturned the systems of his day to invite his people to be distinct in our world. And if you want to feel Jesus' care for the court of the vulnerable, like if you want to feel it, look no further than Luke Chapter 14, verse 12 and 13, he says this. He said also to the man who had invited him, he was at this party, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. 
and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So a little bit of context here in Luke 14. Society operated in like a hierarchy setup. And so it was designed for people that had money to leverage their money to make more money. Sound familiar? And so we have in this day that they would leverage feasts and banquets as an opportunity to network. And so they would invite the right kind of people to the right kind of party. And in inviting the right kind of people, they would leverage themselves and their resources so they could increase their business and increase their network that they had, that web that they had. And Jesus' his advice here was ep- economic and social suicide. I mean, it was the opposite to what the culture was saying in that day. He says, don't just build relationships with people who can help you, but with people with no influence that cannot pay you back. This is the heart of Jesus being put on display. Jesus' ethic of love transcends context and attacks the world system and our world system today at the root. He says, don't just invite those who are just like you who will return the favor back to you. Instead, invite the poor, invite the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And in doing so, you will be blessed in the resurrection of the just. I don't think we understand how much God cares for the widows and the orphans and the poor and the immigrants. For honest, it's our desire for comfort and ease that mutes our obedience to Jesus. You know, I could stand here and I have two options. I can either stand here and all of us listen to the words of Jesus, which is I want that, or I can uh, allow myself to be the glass ceiling and I wouldn't share this because I'm not adhering to it. And what I would say to you is that I feel similar to maybe how you feel. And like my life might not be lining up to this, but I want it. And as followers of Jesus, I pray that we would want to adhere to all of Jesus' words. John Newton, who was a captain of slave ships, and then he shifted his life and became an abolitionist. He said this specifically about Luke 14. He said, one would almost think that Luke 14, 12 through 14 was not considered part of God's word, nor has any part of Jesus' teaching been more neglected by his own people. I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that it is in some respects our duty to give a preference to the poor, I am at loss to understand them. See, what this isn't saying is that you cannot hang out with people similar to you. Jesus hung out with people similar to him. First century Jews were his best friends, and so he was interacting with people that were similar to him in some ways. What this is saying is that if that's all we are doing, your view and my view of the gospel might be a bit skewed. It's not about if we are in the kingdom. The question is if the kingdom has gotten into us. Like has Jesus like gotten into our bones and is he shaping the fabric of how we're seeing the world and how we care for others? And it's these types of texts that remind us of such truths. Luke 14 is a challenge, if we're honest, to the suburban, individualistic, put your garage door down, enter your own kingdom Christianity that we are tempted to adhere to. So what does this look like for us? See, we don't rub shoulders with the quartet of the vulnerable. We will have no one to invite into our lives. There's seasons in the past for me where I've leaned into this more and seasons where I've leaned into it 
less. And if I'm honest with you, I, I find maybe this phrase like COVID comfortable, right? Like we've kind of gone through this period of time where social distancing has kind of led into this like weird reality that we live in. And now it's kind of fast forwarded to like, man, I got to recalibrate. I kind of got to recenter myself on following Jesus and what does that look like and interacting with my neighbors and how do I really engage the quartet of the vulnerable? It's not an elective. It's a core curriculum. Third point. Jesus was clear on the type of community that his true disciples would establish. He was clear. He wasn't looking for us to define it. He wasn't looking for Americans to define it. He wasn't looking for people in the West to define it. He gave a very clear declaration of this is the type of community that I am charging my church to be and look like. And so we have the choice to change his words or we have the choice to submit to him and say, if, if this is not lining up with who I am, then I need to adjust. I don't need to change and adjust his words. I need to adjust. And so in the last teaching in Matthew, it's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we see him go through uh, a lot of things related to the end of the age, and we're going to talk about that over these upcoming weeks. Um, again, Revelation starts next week. Um, but in Matthew 25, verse 34, we see a little bit about these words. It says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least to these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so we have this story where Jesus lays out these sheep and goats. You can read the whole story at another time. But in this story in particular, he emphasizes the sheep, the people that are his. And on the right side, he says this is a place of honor that he's referencing. And he lays out these, these six different things here. And it's interesting, he calls them sheep, and we've mentioned this before, but it's always funny to me when I think about how Jesus called us sheep. Sheep are not the brightest, they are not the smartest animals. The BBC, I mentioned this a while ago, but had a list of the top five smartest animals. Maybe you've come across that, that, um, that article, but, but sheep didn't make the cut in the top five, nor did they make the cut in like the top 50, but the top five included a crow, an octopus, an orangutan, a dolphin, a chimpanzee, and sheep were nowhere to be found. But that's who we are. We are sheep. The sheep are throughout the scripture a depiction of the people of God. And he mentions the fruit of these sheep. These six particular things that they did cared for those people that were in need, the quartet of the vulnerable. So we struggle with this compartmentalized perspective. We can struggle with kind of this personal view of salvation. It's my relationship with God. It's my eternal state. And yes, those things are true. Yet Jesus unites hand in hand, loving God and loving people. They've always been inseparable throughout the text. Always been inseparable. You can't love God and love and not love others. Loving God and loving others is inseparable. To the degree that you love people is to the degree that you love God. Faith without works is dead. 
So family, we belong to another kingdom. And therefore, we don't fit into a political group. It'd be very easy for a political party to take a part of this and say, this is who you got to be. And then the other political party will take part of this and say, this is who you got to be. And we got to break free from that mold and say, we are called to be distinct. And we're called to be, to the degree that Jesus has called us to follow him and what that looks like and doing what he did, that's to the degree that we submit to him. You know, even in the early church, it's interesting if you do research on this, and we've, we've talked about this before, but there were five things that made the church in the first century unique. They cared deeply and were known for caring for the poor. They were known as people who were welcoming and multi-ethnic in who they were as a community. They also cared deeply for a biblical understanding of marriage. They cared deeply about protecting the infant and infanticide and protecting babies. And they also showed charity in how they interacted with people. And again, we can splice that up, and half of that looks like a Democratic Party, and half of that looks like a Republican Party. And we got to say, we can't be submitting to either. We're called to be a distinct people, a people that are holy and separate from this world. Politically, I heard somebody say recently, Christians are homeless. We are homeless. We are, we are uh, people that are, we are sojourners passing through. And Jesus is clarifying that here. We are for the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, from womb to tomb. That's what we're called to, to see human flourishing. Tim Keller said, no heart that loves Christ can be cold to the vulnerable and the needy. So this is the type of community that Jesus has invited us into, to be a part of, a beautiful, eclectic group of people that care for those who might not be like us. Not an elective, but a core curriculum. Because Jesus cares, friends, we, if we want to follow Jesus, we are called to care as well. And I know this is tricky. I know this is tricky, especially in our day, depending upon the things that we listen to. Ideologies are now turning to idolatry, and politics have become the new religion. I don't know if you noticed that. Politics are now the new religion in the 21st century. Parties and ideologies would gladly tell us who to care for and who not to care for. But Jesus didn't give us that freedom. We're called, uh, or we're becoming, man, I get it, becoming calloused and numb. The amount of, uh, you know, news and confusion that we're getting about, you got to demonize these groups of people or these groups of people. There's so much confusion that we are hearing. But man, on this Martin Luther King weekend, we're reminded to care to the degree that Jesus has called us to care. As followers of Jesus, we need to come back to the reality that our baptism is our primary pledge of allegiance. Our baptism, our submission to Jesus as our Lord and our King. See, the church didn't get slavery and segregation right. We remember that this weekend. Because in the land of the free, not all were free. Christians of all colors, including Anglos, didn't step in and protect black brothers and sisters, and that's tragic. We have taken steps forward for sure, but we must recognize that the church can get it wrong as we once did. Also, the church can't get abortion wrong. It's beyond gut-wrenching. The greatest infanticide in human history is now being cast as reproductive justice. To even use justice. Justice is not even a, it's a, it's a term that like, doesn't have any meaning anymore. 
to, to even use justice to refer to destroying millions of babies in the name of freedom is just mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing to think that abortion is happening in an era renowned for equality and inclusion. I mean, we're redefining good and evil to the degree that we want to redefine it, which is why we must be careful as a distinct people to not submit to terminology and ideologies that are redefined based upon the people that we listen to, but instead allow Jesus, our King, to define for us what is good and true and noble. We live in a new moral standard of choice, desire, freedom from sexual responsibility, and these have now become more, pop, uh, more important than the life of the unborn. And we're called to carry the heart of Jesus and to care for the vulnerable. From womb, yes, to tomb, and everywhere in between. Why? Because we believe that God made everybody in the image of God. Everybody has immense value and worth, and so we will fight to care and protect and love and serve because we believe that our creator created all peoples of all colors, all socioeconomic statuses in his image. And so we care because we actually believe that. Therefore, as a church, we will seek to be about the kingdom of Jesus and consistently checking ourselves to make sure our ideologies are in submission to Jesus. So therefore, we will lean into showing mercy and love to those who have had abortions. And it's a safe place here. It's a safe place here. We will fight for the unborn in the womb. We will care for those who are poor and hurting. We will give our time and our money for our neighbor. We will seek to be more about the kingdom of Jesus than about the kingdom of this world, because you can't do both. This is not an elective, it's a core curriculum. So for me, man, this has been a hard sermon to prep for, because I just feel like I'm just staring at the mirror. I feel it's light shining upon my heart, just like, man, I want to be awakened afresh. I mean, years ago, I, I, I met with a guy in, in a jail in Gwinnett County every week for like three years. I cared. And then life started happening. Babies started coming. Responsibility started happening. Demand started happening. And then things began to shift. And it looked like different things in different seasons. And I look at myself recently. I'm like, I need to re-sign up. And so I'm just showing you my cards. This is where I'm at. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm together with you as I'm seeking with you to grow and follow Jesus. But I want to be about Jesus. I want to be about his kingdom. All of it. Not just the part that I like but all of it, not just the part that adheres to my political party and the way I vote, all of it. I want to be a part of Jesus and his kingdom. So I've just, you know, practically, what does that look like? I think about Elena Angels and how they're caring for foster care families with love boxes and the opportunity to serve and invest into families that are fostering. It's a practical way to do it. To care and serve Brumby, the school that we so love and are seeking to grow and build relationship with. Really practically learning to uh, serve the teachers and care for the families there. Think about First Care Women's Clinic and how they're actively serving and caring on the front lines of, of women who are considering abortions and how to love and serve and care for them. And the list goes on, but those are some practical ways that we as a community are seeking to care for ministries locally to us. But as I close... I want to recall the Lord's Prayer that we talked about last week. 
And right in the middle of it, that third movement, Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray that prayer. We're saying we want a little more of the kingdom of Jesus in East Cobb and in Marietta than exists right now. We want a little more of that shalom that's to come. We want a little more of that, God. Would you bring a little more of that here now? We're not we're satisfied. We're not just going to say we're always going to have the poor. No, we want to see it different here, God. Would you show up? Would you move? Would you help us to be a part of it? Would you help us to care? Would you help us to lean into families that are hurting and troubled? Would you help us to care for those that are afflicted and addicted? Would you help us, God? Your kingdom come. So remember, as you lean into that Lord's pattern prayer this year, lean into that. That's what we're praying, that what's happening in that future kingdom, we want some of it now, God. I want to be a part of it. So would you help me in that way? Remember, where this is going is what that prayer is reminding us. The Bible begins with a beautiful picture of creation that articulates why this world has fallen, why there's injustice, and why there's sorrow, and why there's betrayal. It tells us who the hero is, who the king of this kingdom is, and it gives us a picture of a future shalom where King Jesus, not someone we vote in, but King Jesus, where he is the prince of shalom and where he reigns. And until that day, we pray your kingdom come and we seek for all to flourish, motivated by the gospel of Jesus, to be representatives of his kingdom to this hurting world. This is what we were made for. We are made to just sit back. We were made to lean in. We were made to get uncomfortable. We were made to get out of our comfort zone. We were made to actually have purpose and being a part of the kingdom of Jesus. This is what you were made for. And this is what we're invited into. I know every season looks different for us, but man, this is not an elective. It's a core curriculum that we're invited into together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we just want to be about you more. We do. Spirit is willing, but God, our flesh is weak. Our flesh is busy. Our flesh is consumed with the things of this world. And so we gather to remember the story of Jesus and to remember to reset. And Lord, I just pray that you would invite us, not with guilt or shame, but with just the ridiculous nature of your grace and care and kindness to us, rebels to you, you pursued us, extended grace, and Lord, let us be the same. We give you thanks. We give you thanks for this community. We give you thanks for this area, this city. And we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. We bless you, Lord. Lord, for those in this community that are doing the good work and leaning into this, I pray you give them strength. For those more like myself, whoever this last season has kind of dialed back a bit, I pray that you would infuse strength into our sails afresh to follow you. Lord, we love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.